Mary Elizabeth Fry once wrote of death, Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am in a thousand winds that blow. I am the softly falling snow. I am the gentle showers of rain. I am the fields of ripening grain. I am in the morning hush. I am in the graceful rush of beautiful birds in circling flight. I am the star shine of the night. I am in the flowers that bloom. I am in a quiet room. I am in the birds that sing. I am in each lovely thing. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Coffee, Tea, and Crime. This is Dana, and in today's episode, JR and I will be covering a horrific double homicide from 1999. This is the story of Lost in Ozark, the murders of J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett. Our story begins in my old stomping grounds, the great state of Alabama. As teenagers, what can be better than going out to the country for a field party? It would have to be going to a field party to celebrate your BFF's 17th birthday. It was in or around 10 p.m. when J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett hopped into Beasley's 1993 Mazda 929 and trekked off from Dothan on that humid night towards the party location somewhere close to Headland. Some folks said the field was between Headland and Midland City somewhere along the 10-mile stretch of Highway 134. The girls never showed up for the party, as they evidently got turned around on some of those old country roads in and about Headland. Though no one knows how they got there, the best friends ended up in the town of Ozark, some 22 miles away from Dothan. At 11.30 p.m. or so, Tracy made a phone call to her mom from the payphone at the Big Little Convenience Store located at 763 East Broad Street, which was closed at the time. She told her mom they had gotten lost and were now in Ozark. They had received directions to Highway 231 from a lady and were on their way back to Dothan. Marilyn Merritt later told police she had pulled on the convenience store lot while the girls were there and given them directions. She watched the girls take a ride onto Broad from the parking lot, just as she had told them to do. Broad would lead them to Highway 231 South and back home, but they never saw home again. Before we get deeper into this story, let's pump the brakes a little and talk about how JB and Tracy ended up in Ozark, when everybody seems to be saying that the party was in Headland, which is approximately 24 miles away from Ozark. There is some talk that the field party was supposed to be on Skipperville Road, which runs from Ozark East to Skipperville, Alabama. Skipperville Road turns into East Broad Street, approximately a thousand feet from the store where the girls were. In fact, from Highway 231 to the store, East Broad changes names two more times. Maybe the constant road name changes could have confused them? There is another story out there that the girls made two phone calls from two separate convenience stores that night while they were in Ozark. The first call was made to some of their friends who gave them directions for the party location. 
The girls then got lost a second time and stopped to make the call from the Big Little convenience store. If the party was to be on Skipperville Road, they were so agonizingly close to finding the elusive destination. The party being in the area of Ozark would make more sense as to why the girls were in that town. It's safe to say we may never know where their true destination was. In any event, the girls got lost in Ozark. By the next morning, JB and Tracy had not arrived home and the parents of both girls called Dothan Police Department to report their daughters missing. Time on both reports showed as 10 a.m. Dothan Police took reports and issued a BOLO, be on the lookout, statewide for Tracy and JB. Dothan Police Department made a call to Ozark and officers from that department began a search for the girls and their vehicle as well as a follow-up at the store. At 9.02 a.m., Ozark Police found JB's car. The following narrative is from the Ozark Police Department report. This officer met with Dothan Investigator Sergeant Miller at Herring Avenue at James Street with vehicle listed that was abandoned in reference to two missing juveniles from Dothan. The car had been found at 0902. And folks, for you non-military and non-police out there, that would be 9.02 a.m. on 8-1 of 99 by Sergeant Blankenship. The vehicle was unsecure. The driver's side front and back window was down. A purse was on the passenger side floorboard front with change purse laying between the driver and passenger seat. Dothan Investigator Miller stated that he was going to open the trunk. Investigator Miller went to his vehicle and put on rubber gloves. Investigator Miller returned to the vehicle and pushed the button located on the inside of the driver's compartment. This officer and Investigator Miller went to the rear of the vehicle. Investigator Miller raised the trunk. Inside the trunk of the vehicle were the two missing juveniles. The victims were deceased. An additional supplement to the original report was submitted by Ozark Police. It reads as follows. The victims had what appeared as a head injury. Both victims were deceased. This officer notified all essential personnel. Investigator Miller notified his department and all essential personnel. Now folks, the reason the reports are so sketchy on information is due to the fact that these reports are public information and police don't want to give out certain facts of the case while the investigation is ongoing. As JR always says, you can't conduct an investigation in the media. Before we get into the vehicle description and general crime scene location, remember that we are providing information, for the most part, gathered from sources other than the local constables. We will let you know when information put out by us is from the police. Any other stuff, we cannot be certain as to the validity of the information other than it is general consensus from sources on the World Wide Web. For instance, Stone Cold Project was a good source of material, in our humble opinions. So tread lightly, my friends. Okay, back to the vehicle crime scene. The vehicle, though muddy, was undamaged and the gas needle was showing a near-empty tank. The driver's side window was rolled down an inch or two and the doors were unlocked. 
JB's driver's license was on the dashboard and the girl's purses were inside the car. However, the car keys were nowhere to be found. The girl's shoes and lower pants legs were muddy and wet. One 9mm shell casing was covered from inside the trunk. The spent casings could be an indication that one or both victims were shot after being placed in the trunk. Semi-automatic pistols, for example, eject rounds out from the right side of the weapon. The killer would have to have been standing at or very near the trunk for the casings to have landed inside with the right side of the weapon closest to the trunk. Police would later recover two spent 9mm bullets from the trunk area, one from the left rear quarter panel and the second from the right rear quarter panel. There is some speculation that the mud and near-empty gas tank has relevance to the crime itself. It was said the car had been filled up the day before. The witness who spoke to the girls at the convenience store said the car was spotless and the girls' clothing was in tip-top shape. We don't know how factual that report is, but it would be viable in determining what may have happened after the girls left the store. Now, about the gas, we don't know how many miles the car was driven on the 31st of July when the girls were searching for the party. Maybe it was already close to empty. Did the girls realize this and stop for gas when they encountered the killer? Bullet path. The bullet perforates the face in a front to back and right to left direction, grazing the base of the skull perforating the medullary and cervical spinal cord junction, exiting in a 5 8 inch length laceration in the posterior upper neck, 8 inches from the top of the head on the midline. No bullet recovered at autopsy. An area of powder stippling 4.5 by 2.5 inch area on the back of the right hand. 32 inches from the top of the head is also present. Cause of death, intermediate range, gunshot wound to the face. Manner of death, homicide. Bullet path. The bullet perforates the skull and brain in a right to left direction, guttering the anterior cranial fossa floors, macerating the frontal lobes and contusing the anterior left temporal lobe. The bullet exits in a three-quarter inch laceration just in front of the ear, six inches from the top of the head, one inch in front of the ear, and four inches to the left of the nose. No bullet recovered at autopsy. Cause of death, intermediate gunshot wound to the head. Manner of death, Homicide. Exhibit 2. One sealed manila envelope labeled in part right rear quarter panel containing one fired copper jacketed bullet. Laboratory examination of this 9mm slash 38 caliber bullet revealed that it had been fired through the barrel of the same firearm as the bullet described elsewhere as Exhibit 3. Page 2. Exhibit number 3. 
one sealed manila envelope labeled in part left rear quarter panel containing one fired copper jacketed bullet. Laboratory examination of this 9mm slash 38 caliber bullet revealed that it had been fired through the barrel of the same firearm as the bullet described elsewhere as exhibit number two. So now we have the Ozark Police Department, the Dothan Police Department, and the Alabama Bureau of Investigation, or ABI, all working together on this case. The autopsies on both girls have been completed. Within three months of the time of the crime, forensic work had been completed on the 9mm shell casing recovered from the trunk of JB's car, and the two spent bullets, or as the Alabama Crime Lab referred to them, the fired copper jacketed bullets recovered from the left and right rear wheel wells. Now all they needed was a suspect. And as is true with most homicides, there was no shortage of suspects or conspiracy theories as to where the girls were actually going, who they were meeting, how many suspects were involved, why the police couldn't solve the case, which included the old, the police murdered them and were stalling, thus explaining why the case wasn't solved. Spoiler alert, if the police had done it, then it seems logical that they would run out and put the crime on somebody so they could close it by arrest. Just saying. They certainly had a patsy in Johnny Barentine who wanted to collect the reward money. He started out telling the police he had information on the case. And before the Barentine saga ended, he had given the police six different stories, and in some of them, even placing himself at the scene of the crime before then saying he had actually done it or participated in it. And do not let us fail to mention the man from Mississippi, not to be confused with the man from Michigan, the man in the white truck closely related to just the white truck. Narco cops did it. Uniformed officers from Ozark did it. Uniformed officers from some mysterious, unnamed department did it. It was one person, two, three, and on and on. And for those spitting out theories, the girls were out boozing it up or buying dope from the local Ozark junkie. The autopsies showed no alcohol or drugs in their systems whatsoever. We here at Coffee, Tea, and Crime try to ground ourselves with facts. You know, like our old buddy, Sergeant Joe Friday. With that eloquent soliloquy out of the way, back to the case. The case lingered for almost 20 long, heart-wrenching years until DNA extracted from semen collected from J.B. Beasley's clothing was matched to a man from Ozark, Coley Lewis McCraney. At the time of the crime, McCraney lived less than half a mile from the spot where the vehicle was recovered. Interpretations. The DNA detected from the stains on the sweater, item 5, and the DNA profile of Coley Lewis McCraney Mac. With a high degree of confidence, Coley Lewis McCraney, or his identical twin, is the source of the DNA detected from the stains on the sweater. Partial DNA detected in the sperm fractions of the stains on the panties, item 3, stains A and B, and the DNA profile of Coley Lewis McCraney match. 
JR and I are thinking that maybe the lady, when giving directions, told the girls to hang a left on South Union, which would take them to Highway 231, rather than going all the way down East Broad to the intersection with Highway 231. Or maybe she told them to go all the way down Broad and the girls saw the 231 sign and decided on their own to turn left on South Union and try to hit the highway that way. There are four red lights on South Union between Broad and Highway 231. McCraney could have walked up on the car at any of the intersections. Maybe the girls stopped and asked McCraney if they were going the right direction to get to Highway 231 since it is a fair piece down South Union. After the night they had had, it wouldn't be a shock that they were nervous about getting lost again. We firmly believe this was a random act, a spur of the moment crime of opportunity. Okay guys, that'll wrap it up for this episode. Thank you so much for watching this video. We would love to know what you think happened in this case. Let us know in the comments below. Also, if you have a case you'd like us to cover in future videos, please let us know that too in the comments. And last, but certainly not least, please hit that like button and don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell to be notified for more cases like this. JR and I will see you on the next case.